If you're visiting, we've been in a series, as far as the sermons go, in the last book of the Bible, Hebrew, uh, Revelation. And, uh, but we're, we're deviating from that just this morning for a little bit, and we're looking in the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow where I'm going to be in the, uh, in the text that's in the order of worship. But we're going to look at two batches from Hebrews, one from chapters, uh, chapter 3 and then from chapter 10. An acquaintance of mine, uh, not, not a close friend, but, but uh, an acquaintance of mine told me about an experience he had when he had to have surgery, and I've, this, he's the only person I've ever heard to, to experience what I'm about to, to describe. You know, I've heard of people having very um, locally anesthetized, you know, outpatient surgery, but I've never heard of someone being operated on really on their innards and being awake during the surgery. And I can't remember what was being operated on, but he was having surgery during the surgery he was in and out so for part of it he was awake while they're just inside of him you know and there's that surgical curtain well he he said that when he when he woke up the first time he was just getting his bearings and he realized what's going on he smelled this horrible smell and he wondered you know is that just some kind of uh is that some chemical they're using in here and then the smell's going to dissipate and the smell just stayed and so he, he looked up at the surgeon and said, what is that smell? And the surgeon looked over the curtain and said, that's you. <laughs> it's, it's your innards. And uh, just, he just said it was just a really creepy feeling to smell how gross he is when that's always been contained. You know, it's just kind of, it's all contained and hidden in there, but it's always been there. He just had never experienced it that way. Let, let me give you an incredibly short soundbite about Hebrews because we're just kind of parachuting in on these two little batches here. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the church received this as apostolic, really from the beginning. But whoever wrote it, they're writing to a group of people who are Jewish. Hence the name of the book, Hebrews. And the people who are receiving this letter, here's what happened. They, they grew up Jewish, all that that would entail, grew up with the law and the prophets and those practices, but somewhat recently they had been exposed to Christian teaching. And so someone had come and had shared with them the gospel. And if you're visiting, we use that word here all the time. That's the biblical word for the good news. It's the good news that what we could not do to save ourselves, Jesus Christ did in real space and time, that God became man and took care of what we could not take care of in ourselves. Well, someone had come to this group of people and had told them, and said, like, the law and the prophets that you grew up with, let me tell you who fulfills that, who came and did everything that was prophesied. And so initially, this group had responded to that very favorably and even says with a lot of joy, but something's happened. And at least a critical mass of them are considering returning to Judaism. Not becoming atheists, not leaving religion altogether, but just returning to the practice of their forefathers. And here's what the writer, we're going to hear him saying in in these texts. There's something yucky inside of you that you don't even realize is you. And that thing in you 
even as you outwardly would claim to know God and love God and, and, and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is moving you away from the real knowledge and worship of Him. So, okay, if that's the situation, then what do we do about that? And we might hear that and go, well, then they need good teaching. But that's the thing. They had had good teaching. And at first they'd responded joyfully to it, but now they're wandering off. And the writer is saying, there is this yucky thing whether you have actually smelled it or not. It's in there. What do we do about it? And I want us to look at what does the writer say is part of the answer to that problem. And by the way, this is, in, this is relevant for any group of Christians anywhere, but this is especially relevant in a place, a church place like where we are. Because this is not written to people who have never heard about the Bible and never heard about God and never heard about sin. It's to people who grew up with that stuff. The writer says, what you're about to do is engage in unbelief. What's the answer? First from Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, the prophet said that the flower fades, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. But that may not feel like that's even real to us this morning. Uh, The Word might seem less real than our problems or our discouragement or our setbacks. So please help us. Help us to hear it in all its reality, in all its goodness, in all the ways that it knows us, you know us better than we know ourselves. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you to imagine, this is completely hypothetical, I want you to imagine that you're talking to a friend of yours. And your friend is talking about engaging in uh, sort of a new workout regimen. And maybe he or she is doing strength training and they're trying to get better muscle tone. Maybe they're getting ready for a half marathon, whatever. But they're kind of, you know, they're in a push. And so you ask them how it's going and uh, they say, well, I don't know. I'm a little discouraged about it. I'm not seeing the results that I thought I would. You say, well, what's the deal? What are you doing right now? What if the person said, well, my schedule so far has been I'm on one week with exercise and then I'm off two or three. I also almost completely take off the month of May because just everything for our kids kind of gets collapsed into May, so I've really dropped it in May. Some pretty big chunks from the summer are taken off just because, you know, summer's crazy and we're all over the place and it's kind of hard to stick to a regimen. 
in intense times of business, I drop it some just when things have gotten crazy at work. And I'm, I'm not seeing the advances that I thought I would. I'm not, my times are bad. Everything still feels really heavy when I try to lift it. It hurts. You would probably outwardly say, huh. And you, you, inwardly you'd be thinking, you, you know nothing about human physiology. Obviously. Now, I, I'm not expert enough to know about like, how long it takes for muscles to atrophy or how quickly you lose you know, advances in your running time or whatever. But think about this. We, and I really am saying we, we approach soul care in a way that we never would with body care. And that's the very thing that the writer is addressing. And, and I, I don't want to just beat this to death, but I want to say it again because I really want this clear in our minds. That this is so interesting because the, 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 the target audience of Hebrews is not a group of people who grew up with um, a religion outside of the Bible. And it's not written to a group of people who grew up with no religious practice and their parents were all atheists. That's not who received this. These are people that grew up in the synagogue and loved the temple and had heard the law and the prophets and knew the stories about the patriarchs and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the writer is saying, you, you are the very people who can fall into unbelief. And there are ways that you may not even know that you're not taking care of your soul. And there is this yucky thing inside of you that is moving you in a direction that will hurt you. So here's what I want to look at from these two texts. And it was interesting. I was already looking at these two passages. I mean, they're seven chapters apart. But more than one commentator on Hebrews said, you know, these two passages are hitting on some of the very same things, even though they're distanced in Hebrews. So let's look at this. From the writer's point of view, what's the problem and what's the answer? What's the problem? What's the answer? Let's look at that. First off, the problem. Now, now listen to the language of verse 12. It says, take care, brothers. And again, note that he's saying brothers. He's not saying, I don't even know if any of you are Christians or not. He's addressing them as Christian brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And man, that sounds like he's talking to people who are kind of sitting back saying, you know, I just don't even know about theism anymore. I don't even know if God exists. You know, I don't know if I'm an atheist, but I think I'm an agnostic. I I don't even think if I know... Uh, anything, if you can't know anything about God. No, these are people who are saying the, 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 the message about Jesus of Nazareth and thinking that he fulfills the law of the prophets is fascinating, but some of us in our relationship with God, we, we want to return to the ways of our forefathers that we know. And the writer is saying, look out, that is tantamount to unbelief to people who who are saying, we will still believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We still want to keep the Ten Commandments, all that stuff. He's saying, that's unbelief. Now let that hit you. This is like something that Paul said in one of his letters. 
he's writing a letter to Timothy, and he makes a really bizarre comment about himself. He says, you know, formerly I was a blasphemer. You know, wait a minute. Paul grew up in a super strict, super devout Jewish household. The last thing he would have done is blaspheme God. He said, no, but I used to be a blasphemer. Why would he say that? But do you get what he's saying? I'll tell you how I was a blasphemer. Yeah, I believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I didn't believe in the greatest thing he ever did. I didn't believe in the ultimate way that he manifested himself to sinners. And that is the person and work of his son. Yeah, I believed in him in a way. But I didn't believe that. And he says, that is blasphemy. Isn't that amazing? The writer to Hebrews is saying, yeah, you're going to return to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and reject this, you know, kind of Jesus sect. And what that will be is unbelief. How does that happen? Verse 13. Okay, if, they, if that's the bad trajectory, what's, what's behind it? He says, well, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's an interesting phrase. The deceitfulness, the sneakiness of sin. Now, I've said this in sermons before, but let me say it again. I've heard the question asked, if you were deceived, would you know it? You can't. If you're deceived, you don't know. And the writer is saying, that's what sin does. It says, look, here's what's reasonable. Here's what makes sense. Here's what's smart. Here's what's best for us. And it's fooling us. This is all of us. Let let me read you a, a, a quick little quote here. This is by Martin Luther, a German reformer. He wrote this almost 500 years ago. And this is like psychotherapy before there was psychotherapy. And listen to this. He's, he's, he's talking about this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. Martin Luther writes, It is rightly called the deceitfulness of sin because it deceives under the appearance of good. And that's exactly what the devil did at the very beginning. He didn't ride in on a Harley in black leather and go, Ditch God! He kind of came with half-truths and put a twist on it. And Martin Luther writes this. This phrase, the deceitful... Look at this. The deceitfulness of sin ought to be understood in a much wider sense so that the term includes even one's own righteousness and wisdom. And get what he's saying. The deceitfulness of sin plays to what we like best about ourselves. And typically, one thing that we like best about ourselves is that we think we get it. You know, kind of like, you know, there's not many people that get it. But really, just a few of us. And Martin Luther writes this. We, this is unbelievable. We love nothing more ardently than our own feelings, judgment, purpose, and will, especially when they seem to be good. And th- there's a little German Christian psychotherapy for you saying that sometimes when you think you're being the most shrewd, we're being taken for a ride. The people receiving this letter may have been thinking, 
we're not on opposite sides of this. I'm pro-God. I am pro-God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm pro-God of Israel. We are not at odds with each other. And the writer is saying, you are deceived. If you're moving away from Jesus, you are deceived. That verb, and we translate it at the very beginning of the passage, take care. Read One Greek scholar said that the way this appears in this passage is like he's saying, you must be constantly on the watch. And again, in a way that we would, we would never think that my physical condition, whether you're thinking about diet or muscle or speed or, or whatever, hydration, we would never think, if I just stand here and don't do anything, I'll stay exactly the same. So much more so with the heart. There's a yuckiness inside of us that wants to move in the wrong direction. And the direction is, a, and it can even be saying, yeah, love God, pro-God, to move away from Jesus Christ. The uniqueness of the gospel. What He alone can do. And there's the problem. What's the answer? Well, again, you, you might think the answer is just to say, well, it's, it's the Bible. I mean, the answer is just that they've got to hear the Word of God. And that's partly true. I mean, there's a great passage about the Bible in between these two passages. Hebrews chapter 4, it says the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll just get in there right where you live. It talks about it'll cut between joint and marrow. It's the picture of us being turned into a sacrifice that's given to God. Yeah, you've got to have God's Word. That's where the truth comes from, right? But then what if your sneaky, yucky thing in you even takes that good teaching and wants to go in the wrong place and deceive you. Let me, let me just reread parts of the passage with an emphasis. Just listen. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day. Chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You've got to have the Word of God. But the writer is saying, what else helps us not be duped by that thing in us? And the answer is what? It's one another. Now, the preacher in me is wanting to unpack every one of those verbs. What do we mean by exhort? And what do we mean by encourage? And what's the Greek term for stir up good works? I mean, I want to just get into all of it. But for time's sake, and really, I think just for the emphasis this morning, here's what I want to look at. He says, all right, if we're going to do that, how's that going to happen? Because we don't have the monopoly on busyness. You know, they had busy lives. How do you do this? And I want you to look in verse 25. This is so important. Of chapter 10, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And there's been a lot of study about that term, meet together. It's one Greek verb. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but the, the Greek verb, it looks like episynagogue. And that probably sounds like, it sounds like synagogue. What does it mean to episynagogue? 
And the, the best thing I've read on this, a New Testament scholar, he looked at all these different options, he looked at backgrounds to the Word, big overview, and then here's where he landed. He says, here then the term should be understood as simply the regular gathering together of Christian believers for worship and exhortation in a particular place. A practice that at first took place daily, that's in Acts chapter 2, but subsequently weekly on the first day of the week. And he cites two places in the New Testament where it describes that. Now, if that's the case, then here's what the writer's saying. If that yucky thing is going to be held in check, we've got to have one another. But how do you get the one another that you need in your life? Well, some of it's things that we do during the week. It's daily stuff. He says, exhort one another every day. You've got to have these relationships built into your life. And you've got to be intentional for that to happen. But this thing that he's pleading with them not to neglect is meeting together. And, the ter- and there are other Greek terms for meeting together, but the one he uses seems to describe exactly what we're doing this morning. It's coming together on the Lord's Day at an agreed-upon place, agreed-upon time, to worship God and be the body of Christ with each other. Now, it's interesting because like, I'm preaching to the people who came. You know? So you may be thinking like, okay, well then we're good because I'm here. But you know, even though you came, it may be that, but I don't know. I feel sometimes like I come more out of habit and honestly, I, I, I don't know that I want to. A lot of the time, I don't know that I want to. Or maybe it's getting harder for me to do that. What, what do we do with that? I was thinking about what are the barriers to coming to weekly worship? And, you know, and I could cite statistics that have been done about average church attendance among professing Christians, but I don't know how much that really engages our heart. I think after a while, it kind of sounds like the Charlie Brown teacher, you know, just wah, 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 wah. And you're going, well, okay, yeah, I know. People skip church. I know that. Let me throw out one thing to think about. This is not exhaustive. It's just here's an observation. I would say it's safe to say that in American culture in general, and I would say certainly in culture in my own life and in the, your lives that we talk about together, feeling in control is not important to us. Feeling in control is sacred. And it is when we have some feeling of being in control of the madness that that often is the the closest we come to feeling like shalom. Like, I am experiencing human flourishing and the children are in bed. You know, or I have hydrated and I will now nap. You know, like, ah, this is the way it's supposed to be. And, and the more I thought about this text, and the more I thought about our lives together, and just the realities of church and congregation, this meeting is very threatening to feeling in control. Because you just can't switch it to another channel. We, we can't pause it. I mean, you can 
excuse yourself and go to the restroom or go walk around the parking lot or whatever, but there's a sense in which, if I, whether I come here individually, if I come here with a friend, if I have a spouse and children, and I come here as a family, what I'm thrust in with a group of people and I can't control who will be there. And if you are a parent, maybe my child or my children are with other children and I can't control what all children are there. I can't control what we will sing. I can't control how I will feel, whether I will be interested or not during the sermon. I can't control what somebody might ask me or need from me before or after the service. The more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? If we think control is sacred, this is a horrible place to be. And maybe that's the point. Because you do know the little biblical secret (laughs) that we're never in control. God's in control. We just sometimes feel like we are. And then a lot of times we feel what's true, which is that we're not. But in this weird way, we need one another to remember the gospel. And we need the preaching of the word. I've given my life to it. Believe me, I've got a high view of it. But we need each other's presence to keep that yucky thing inside of us in check. To help one another not move away from Christ because the trajectory of the human heart is to move away from Him rather than toward Him. And the irony is that He's what our heart craves. He's what our heart needs. But there's this thing called sin that says, let's explore other options. I want you to look at your bulletin for a second. Look at the beginning. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 22. I'm not starting the service over. But I want you to note this. Psalm 22 is a psalm about the Messiah. The first verse of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted Psalm 22 on the cross. And there's details in Psalm 22 about the crucifixion. But but get this. The writer of Hebrews takes that first verse of our call to worship where it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The writer of Hebrews takes that verse and he quotes it in Hebrews and says, you know what that's talking about, don't you? That's Jesus talking about us. Now, do you hear what he just said? He says that, yes, this is the experience of a Christian saying, yes, I'm with my brothers, I'm in the congregation, and I'm going to praise you, God. But he's saying the ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 23, uh, Psalm 22 is the Son of God being in the midst of a Christian congregation regarding us as His brothers when we're the problem. And in our midst, in our congregation, Him praising God 
and joining His voice with ours. Whether we feel that that has happened in our midst, the Scripture says it has and it does. And here's the thing. If all we needed was just good biblical gospel content, if that's all we needed, and someone said, you know, it just works better for me to like listen. I mean, yeah, I'll go to community groups, stuff like that. But it works better for me with my schedule right now to listen to the sermon on the podcast while I exercise. Or to listen to the sermon or the podcast while I'm doing errands. And I can multitask and I'm all about it. And I'm getting things done. I'm, I'm, I'm loving the stuff that Jake's saying, other preachers are saying, Brian, you're saying. It just works better for me than coming on Sunday morning. If all we needed was the content, I would have to say, well, I think then you're smart to do it that way. But the reality is, if you, if you substitute this with listening to the sermon in private, will you get the content? We hope so. But will you have Christ in the midst of the congregation regarding us as his brothers and praising with us? No, you won't. There's nothing like it. For all our problems, there's nothing like it. The irony is that we might want to pull away from the community to get closer to God which is exactly the wrong thing to do. What does that mean? It may mean that, you know what, if, we, if you have vacation time, and it's this, this certain week, that rather than take it to the edge of Sunday night, because we can, that you begin to say, you know what, the way we're going to do this is it's going to go to Saturday. And we're going to, I'm going to come home, we're going to come home, and the dust is going to settle, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to be with my community. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to eat lunch, and I'm going to nap the nap of the blessed, and then face Monday. And that is how I will do life, because Christ is in the midst of the congregation. It may mean, rather than planning my life and then seeing how much of worship can we fit in with the leftover spaces that I plan around this thing, called worship because that is soul care. And it's how I experience the gospel. Let me end with this. And I just thought about... This is a weird image to leave you with, but I'm going to leave you with a weird image. There was a movie that came out 10 years ago. It was a a movie done by M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan? I don't know how to say that. And it was called Signs. And it had crop circles and aliens, all the things that make an an American movie good. And uh, you've got this dad and um, and I think a brother-in-law and two young children living in this farmhouse surrounded by these cornfields where these crop circles are appearing. Now, one little subplot in the movie, it's not really a plot, it's just a detail, is that the youngest child in the family, this little girl, is constantly taking glasses of water and just taking a few sips of them and then just leaving them sitting all over the house. And when, when, you know, when her, the, the mom has died, so that when the dad asks her, why do you do that? She'll say, that water was too dusty. Or that water was just too, that water was too thick. Or that water didn't taste right. He's saying, all the water is the same. 
but she'll just take a sip or two, and then she'll just leave glasses still full of water all over the house. Now, the humans and the aliens, they get into it. House gets wrecked along the way. Aliens are dispatched, and you think it's the end of the movie. You know how sometimes movies have two endings? Okay, so that was the first ending. And so they're kind of tidying up the house after the aliens. You know how aliens will wreck a house. And so <laughs> Mel Gibson is wheeling this uh, television on a stand kind of back into its place, getting the house back in order. And, and the TV's off, so it's just a you know, blank screen. And he's looking at the TV, and all of a sudden in the reflection, he realizes there's an alien right behind him. One got left behind. And he slowly, Hollywood, you know, turns around. And this alien is holding the limp body of his son who has had an asthmatic attack and needs help immediately. And the alien has his claws over it about to kill him. And so everybody's at a standoff. Now, without reviewing the whole scene, isn't this exciting? Without, okay, without going through the whole scene, something happens where the alien stumbles and he, one of those glasses of water topples and it spills on his shoulder and it burns it like battery acid would burn our skin. And all of a sudden at that moment, everybody in the room, that family in the farmhouse, they all realize at the same moment something that they haven't known the whole movie and that is that water burns these aliens. And... The cinematography is beautiful because the camera kind of pans back and they look around. There are glasses of water everywhere. And it's beautiful because, of course, we're pulling for the earthlings, right, as the viewer. And so just a moment ago, you're going, man, that, what are they going to do? That kid needs, you know, his epi pen and, and he's going to die and the aliens got him. And, and, and then when you see the glasses of water, you go, that alien is toast, gone, and he is gone with him. How in the world could that ever apply to the book of Hebrews? And here's, here's how I think it does. Yeah, let's close in prayer. Just kidding. The, okay. The image I want to leave you with is this, is that here's all these discards. That one doesn't taste right. That one doesn't feel right. That water's too dusty. It's, it's, something's wrong with that. And so they're just all over the house. And then there's a threat that no one saw coming And then what is the answer? It's all the discards. And I I, want to say this is a reality about who we are as the church. We have been together long enough that in this room, if you've logged almost any time, you can look around and go, she rubs me the wrong way. And he comes on too strong. And she's socially awkward. And they took my parking one time. And he held me captive one day in the lobby, and, and I don't click with her. We have logged enough time where we can have that, where in a sense, I'm clicking with some people, but I'm discarding people along the way, and the writer to Hebrews is saying, but what about when that threat presents itself? The deceitfulness and evil in our hearts that all of us have. And the answer is what? It is each other. That Christ is the great answer, but we experience Him through each other. 
And here's my exhortation to you. Build what we're doing this morning in. Build community groups in. Build coffee and meals and hospitality with each other in. Or our hearts will begin to say, take a break from it for a month and then let's come back to it when we're refreshed. And then your heart will harden. We need the congregation. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as those who know you and have tasted of the gospel, thank you for the sight of each other's faces. Thank you for the sound of each other's voices. Thank you for the sight of brothers and sisters coming to take the bread and the cup. Thank you for the sound of each other confessing our sins so that we know that we're not alone. Lord, show us Christ through each other. Help us to know each other well enough that we can exhort. We know how to stir someone up. Know how to encourage that person who's discouraged. We're not good at it. Please help us. Father, for the person here who doesn't know where they are spiritually, draw her, draw him toward the congregation where they may hear the gospel and be with God's people and find Christ. Do that even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.